Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-hosts, Mickey Turner, Susie Rantz, Tim Foss, Beth Mantle, and Dave Clark. This has been an extremely weird podcast. How are they going to be able to handle that? Just the bottom line is they don't have an answer to that. There was never really a time when I was super concerned. Seattle did fine. There's a reason they got signed to first team contract. Very special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of Seattle Sounder. You know who he is. Brian... How are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. Joining me today is Dave Clark, Susie Rance, and Mickey Turner. How's everyone doing today? Pretty good. Doing good. Lots are coming up. I, I guess I should do a better job of giving everyone a chance to talk individually. Otherwise, I was just like begging for you to all chime in at once. So I apologize <laughs> for not being a better host. Uh, but Susie, uh, you haven't been with us for a while. It's great to have you back. Uh, real quick, what were your impressions of, of this first loss of the season that the Sounders just suffered? I think it was obviously bound to happen at some point. And um I think the team in showed a lot of fight under a lot of hard circumstances for them. So I'm glad that they lost in a situation where didn't play horribly against, uh, you know, a, with a full strength squad. I think there were a lot of positives in terms of their fight to take away from it that um, hopefully set them up well for this hard stretch of games this week. You know, I found myself oddly relieved. Uh, I think if, if they hadn't scored in that sequence, I thought there was a pretty good chance that the that the foul on Robin Lud would have been given as a penalty if they had gone to a VAR on it. And I found it oddly comforting that I, I felt better about losing the way that they did rather than losing on a penalty. That would have felt like they had it, you know, that would have felt a little bit more hard to swallow, I think, to go down on a penalty. But as it is, it was kind of a fluky goal. I think you can argue that the Sounders were the better team between the water breaks, which were in the 30th and 75th minutes, I believe. And, and they actually had a goal disallowed in that time and they had the better chances. I thought, uh, Dave, any, any, any other impressions from that game? No, I think, uh, I think we saw that Minnesota United is a decent enough team now for all the grief that we used to give Adrian Heath and that organization for hiring Adrian Heath, they, they've turned into um, a decent side in the West that, frankly, Seattle will have to beat in the playoffs, a, a team of that caliber. So knowing that you can beat them 4-0 at home and um, take them to a something that will be between 0-0 and 1-1, some, somewhere in that realm on the road, I, I think Seattle can know that they're, they're still the better side overall on the season. Um, whether or not that that one result and, and the, the record and whatnot has fallen um, or ended. It's still a, you know, for, for all of that, they could have pulled off a zero zero draw um, with all those injuries and absences. Yeah. And I thought a zero zero draw would have been a, a fair result on the, on the balance. Mickey, you've been, at training the most among us. Uh, what are you, what is it looking like out there these days? You know, they, they only had 
13 eligible outfield players for this game. It looks like they might only have 12 uh, from the first team roster available for this next game. Uh, is it just like walking wounded out there? What's it look like at, at training camp at, at training? Yeah, it's pretty much uh, the whoever's going to be playing in the game scrimmaging against the defiance uh, at this point. And at some points, the defiance uh, making up a decent percentage of those uh, Sounders who are going to be playing uh, with the first team. So, yeah, it's been pretty rough over the over the last couple of weeks. We've only actually been out to a few training sessions just because of the way the schedule has worked with the international break and them coming back uh, to uh, change up things and allow us to attend. But I mean, the, the trainings themselves have been, you know, pretty standard. It's just the fact that they've just been so limited with uh, the personnel. I mean, you've got uh, even new who, who was rumored to be available for the Minnesota game. He wasn't training um, last week. Uh, before they left, he was doing some stuff on the side, but he wasn't involved with anything, which made uh, Schmetzer's assurances that uh, he was going to be traveling uh, a little odd. But of course, maybe he suffered a setback in the in the time between when he said that and when we were watching training. But yeah, it's it's kind of becoming an emer- well, it is, already is an emergency situation. I think it's fair to say uh, because uh, they're likely going to have to avail themselves of the exemption, the hardship exemption for what two or three players at this point because Ariaga is not available so that's another one uh who's gone and they just you know you know it, it's, it's it's rough at this point and it's going to be interesting to see who else they bring up and they're probably at least one or two of them are probably going to play some minutes on Thursday just because of the rotation um and you've got a road game yeah why yeah, it's of- oh go ahead Dave it's going to be interesting for these hardship call-ups because I feel like Juan Alvarez and Obed Vargas were called up more as a, Hey, this is what it's like to be around the first team kind of thing that, that there was no real assumption that they were going to play. And when the bench is going to be so shallow as it is for the midweek match uh, for certain, um, you, you don't really have that comfort or ability to pick a guy as just kind of an honor. Uh, hey, have a trip to Austin and hang out with the first team. You got to pick a guy that will uh, not harm the squad and probably one of the center backs too. So it's going to be interesting. And as Mickey was saying, the integration between defiance and first team has been stronger over the past week because the size of the squads than ever before. And and that might be a good thing just because uh, Schmetzer, Weber, et cetera, can see some of these guys that weren't necessarily um, on the short list well, they've had to participate in first team trainings just because things are so short. So maybe you get this kind of moment where you see somebody that stands out that hadn't stood out in the past. You know, I also wonder if we're going to have to see, you know, we haven't really, I don't think Reed Baker Whiting has played since he made his debut, which is, you know, essentially like a little cameo appearance at the end of a game earlier this year, he's traveled. uh, The team seems, you know, he's been playing with a defiance. Uh, but he hasn't gotten into a first team game since then it, you know, it's getting to the point now where he almost has to play. Uh, I also wonder if Josh Atencio might have to move back to center back, which is a position as far as I know that he hasn't played since 2019. Uh, although he did play it extensively in 2019. And, uh, and then Ethan Dobler, I almost wonder if he's going to have to, he might have to start. I mean, this is a guy who uh, they were talking about moving to right wing back early in the preseason, like as a, 
experimental kind of thing. We've heard it mentioned again since then. You know, we heard Kellen Rowe was was having to take fluids just to uh, get ready for this game. And he played 90 minutes. I thought, for what it's worth, I thought Rowe looked fine. I didn't think he showed any obvious signs of, of being worn down in that game. Uh, you know, you can maybe find some fault on the goal that, that Minnesota scored, but I think you could probably find fault with three or four players in the center's defense on that one. Uh, but anyway, I almost wonder if, if Dobler might have to start in this one. Uh, it's it's going to be an interesting lineup, to say the least. Yeah, I think uh, just briefly, uh, you know, Joe Paolo, who, you know, there was some worry if he was going to be available for the Minnesota game, and he turns out he was, he was fine. But are you going to play him three times in a week? Uh, right. That is another consideration. And so maybe you end up with Leva and uh, Tensio in some sort of defensive midfield pairing. Of course, that leaves you a center back short at the moment. As to Dave's point, they may have to call someone up from the defiance. But yeah, they, they're a couple of the kids, it seems like, are just going to have to play and maybe more than just a couple. And they may end up with like three or four players, uh, either from the defiance or just from their homegrowns that they've signed that end up, you know, starting the game because you just, you know, you're going to be in Austin. It's going to be sweltering heat. Most likely you're coming off a game in Minnesota where the conditions weren't great. Uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Susie, uh, there's been some talk at least online about people, about the Sounders switching back to a four, two, three, one, uh, with the idea that they're so short on center backs. Do you have any, any particular thoughts on that sort of tactical change and how, how big of a deal that would really be? Yeah, I think it's hard if you haven't been you know, training in that environment to make the shift, especially with, with what we're just talking about with a lot of young players who haven't been playing and integrating with this team to suddenly uh, make an adjustment to the formation. Uh, that's my initial reaction. I think my observation a little bit from the Minnesota game, um, you know, we talked about the positives that we saw on the field was Minnesota actually had the Sounders pinned back for a good amount of the game. I think actually I was looking at some of the stats. They had the fewest touches in the attacking third that they had all season. Mm. Um, and, um, I think, I think in that sense, Minnesota did a good, good job on keeping the Sounders pinned back a little bit more. And how do you break that against Austin? I'm not sure a new formation is going to do anything there. It's going to protect you more on the defensive side, maybe, but, um, with the limited number of center backs, but they're going to be looking to attack. Um, I don't think the formation change would do anything for that. Also, one thing to remember about the formation change, if you're playing all these young dudes, um, Defiance aren't playing in a, haven't played in a four-back set since week two um, of this season. They've been in, in their 3-4-3, three, three, which looks a lot like what is what was played at Minnesota. So, in my opinion, uh, if you're going to play one to three young dudes with uh, limited professional experience, you're going to play them how they've been training. Uh, and how they've been training for the past year, essentially, has been in a three-back set. So uh, have them be as familiar with their roles as possible, so they have to think as little as possible, uh, is, is a better way to succeed in the short term uh, for these next two games. And my guess is that Austin is going to press the press the hell out of them. Uh, that has kind of been their MO uh, this season anyway. And they're going to see an opportunity against the Sounders team that's going to have a lot of a lot of uh, you know personnel changes. Uh, and you know, see saw the success that Minnesota has had, and teams generally have had at pressing the Sounders at time. 
and certainly going to want to do that. So that's going to be something to watch out for, I think. You know, Susie mentioned that the Sounders didn't have a ton of touches in the offensive third, but one of the positives I thought from this game was that trio of Freddie Montero, Jimmy Madranda, and Raul Ruiz Diaz, I thought generated some dangerous looks. Now they didn't generate a ton of high quality looks, but I thought that they were on the verge of creating, you know, we had one chance, like the best chance was probably uh, Montero put Madranda in and Madranda ended up kind of toe poking it, uh, enforcing a save. Uh, it looked like he may have had Rui Diaz open for a pass, but it looked like actually on the replay, it looked like he would have been offside anyway, but I thought they were finding some success in there. And that gives me some hope that, uh, you know, especially since I don't know that they have a choice, but to use that trio again, did you, Susie, did you find that attack promising? Did you like what you see there? Was there just not enough? I liked it a lot, but I, I still, um, I, I really like Madranda a lot and I'm still not sure him being like in the midfield is better than him being as a, oh, as a wing back. So, um, I like him more there. Um, but I liked the connection that they had. I think you need to utilize the speed in a different way in the midfield was not like there was something where they just weren't in sync against yes. Minnesota. Um, there were a few passes even to Leva where he was anticipating a different one and like it went shooting right by him. And um, so they can be a little more in sync. So I kind of answered your question in an indirect way, but yeah, I like that trio a lot. And I think we're going to have to expect a, they'll, they'll be playing significant minutes against Austin. It, I, I agree. It didn't look like they were quite on the same page, but there were like, ink, there was little moments there where it was like, Oh, if, if they know this is what's going to, how it's going to look, you know, like there was one in particular, I remember where Madranda was driving up the field and he had, it looked like he had, he had Rui Diaz. If he, he just kind of gave it to him, he ended up shooting and Rui Diaz gets frustrated and then sort of waves it off. Like, Oh, we'll get him next time. But I, I thought there was some open space there. I thought that was encouraging. And Danny Leva, I thought actually had a pretty encouraging game too. You know, this was probably as good as he's looked. I, I want to say since, since uh, this year, you know, he had some games like this when he first debuted back in 2019, but he was something like 44 for 46 passing three for four on long balls. You know, he wasn't super effective on pressures. I think he only was like four of 22 success rate on, on pressures, but he had a bunch of inter- He had five interceptions. He, you know, he got in on a couple tackles. Uh, he had some blocks. He had, I think he was tied for second on the team with three key passes. Uh, it was, it was a, a step forward, I thought, as Danny Leva, in terms of him being a ball-moving kind of central midfielder. I, and, you know, you, you take some of these little things, and this was an interesting debate that you and I had a little bit, Dave, in the comment section, where, and this is a little different than the debate, but I, I we've heard Garth say that in some ways, he's okay with this pressure of not having, being forced to play young kids because it's it's forcing us to see them for extended periods of time uh danny leva josh atencio being the the prime beneficiaries of this so far and, and we're probably seeing more of ethan double air than we would see otherwise but you were sort of making the argument dave that at this point it's worth just signing a like a league minimum type of player do you want to expand on that a little bit well i i think part of the reason you want to sign a league minimum player is because um your backup right back just uh, spent his morning with IVs and had to play through a game where he's going to have to play another game and then another game um, three within just a week um, where they're already using IVs to maintain his fluids. Uh, To me, 
that's uh, potentially hazardous for the player, but also just for the squad because the their only other option right now at, at right back is Ethan Dobelair, who has one start and he only played there for a half with Defiance. And then AB Sissoko could flex out there, I guess. Um, that's not a great situation to be in. And that's because the roster's short. Uh, I don't think, I mean, yes, several players have stepped up with their opportunities. Josh Atencio clearly at the beginning of the year, uh, Danny Leva's uh, look strong in more games than not. AB Sissoko's look good. Um, and might even be the fourth best center back on the squad right now, but they got two other guys on the roster who've played maybe 25 minutes between the two of them. And one of those guys has a single minute. So those two youngsters aren't necessarily stepping up. And one of them almost certainly has to start uh, against Austin and depending on injuries and availability, um, because frankly, the team will be ground up and worn down with uh, two games on the road and a bunch of, uh, you know, they threw in some extra plane flights that weren't anticipated having another um, flexible minimum salary um, guy, you know, a poor man's Kellen Rowe or what we thought Kellen Rowe might be back when the season started um, before it turned out that he, he wasn't a shot fighter, that in fact, he's uh, quite good still um, having one of those guys available means that you don't have to have an emergency call up. That's Taylor Mueller or Tom Bruitt or Issa Ryan. Well, and I guess that's the question, though. Is there any reason to think that a league minimum player is going to be better than, you know, Issa Rayon would be the the obvious choice if you needed a right back? You've seen him a lot more than than I think any of us have. What's your assessment of Issa Rayon? Uh, still a little bit questionable uh, defensively, mostly in one-on-one situations. Uh, has the speed to get back and correct those errors fairly well. This is essentially his second year in kind of that wing back role uh, because with the union two, though they played a, they played kind of that red bull four, two, two, two vertical thing. So their fullbacks were essentially wing backs and the only width available. So he did that for one year there um, out here. I think he's, he's quite suited to the wing back role. Um, strong passer for the level. Uh, I've enjoyed watching him and I see potential there. I think, uh, I would be much more comfortable as a Sounders fan watching him get a start there than I would be to say, see Ethan Doubler start there. Um, he's got a lot more experience at the professional level. I, Ethan probably has a higher peak. Issa isn't, isn't 21 yet, but Ethan's still a lot younger. Um, also, uh, Ryan Scott, I think this is his fifth pro season now because he started very young with uh, Bethlehem Steel. So, there's some some interesting potential there. Uh, I think that, you know, of the of the players that they could sign, I would love to see him sign just because if it means that they can get 15 less minutes on Rose legs uh, on the road, I'd be a big fan of that. Uh, and I still think they need to sign one of the center backs rather than um, the two youngest professionals on the team. Do we have – any scouting report on those, the three center backs, I guess that they would probably be choosing from are Taylor Mueller, uh, Tom Bruett and Eric Kinsner, right? Yeah. And I think I'd, I'd, I'll probably wind up going into depth on this at Sounder at Heart, just kind of what the indicators are for each of them. Taylor Mueller's kind of your safe choice. Uh, he's 30 ish now. Um, 
USL leader in minutes and in games played. Uh, Washington native, a little bit slower, decent long ball, likes to get forward as much as any Sounders center back does, uh, but a little bit slower, kind of a conventional, you, you know how he's going to hurt you, if that makes sense. Like the MLS team would look at it and say, if, if he gets beat, we know that this will be how he gets beat. And in some ways, knowing that's, that's fine. Tom Brewitt's a little bit more risky, less time in the squad, um, an aggressive defender who uh, will go in hard, um, a strong enough dribbler. He's, he's played a little bit at defensive mid in the past. Uh, probably the safest of those three. Eric Kinsner's young. Uh, this is his first full pro season uh, this year. He's a Tacoma native, the first Tacoma native um, on the Sounders roster or on the Defiance roster even. And uh, he's left-footed, loves to go in hard, uh, can be prone to errors in passing, which is probably the reason you wouldn't want him on the MLS side just because, uh, heck, that, that led to their losing goal uh, in Defiance's last road game. He basically had a, a simple giveaway inside the 18 that led to a, a two-touch shot. So that's kind of the quick and dirty version. It, it's uh, all of them are an option to uh, to pick uh, pick your poison. And if I had to pick one, I'd probably go Taylor Mueller, just because I think it's easiest for the the MLS side to adjust what he doesn't offer to adjust to what he doesn't offer. Fair enough. Uh, so. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and, and broaden the scope of what we're talking about today. And one of the, the biggest story in MLS this week, I think is, is probably Atlanta United firing their coach. Uh, that means they are currently on their fifth coach in, in four seasons, five seasons, I guess. Fifth, they're having about a coach a year. Uh, this will be the second time they've had an interim coach second year in a row that they fired a coach mid season. Uh, last year, it was Frank DeBoer. This year, it was Gabriel Heinze. And I can't help but contrast that with the state of the Sounders. You know, the Atlanta definitely broke out of the gate faster than Sounders. I think in a lot of ways, they set the they set the template for what expansion teams are going to want to do. They kind of remade the template that the Sounders built, and they they improved on it. But the difference, I think, that we're seeing is, you know, in year five, the Sounders were basically gearing uh, gearing up to win uh, the supporters shield and they were, you know, kind of getting ready to, to go into their next phase of, of the current phase that we're in now. And, and I can't help but contrast that where the Sounders, you can go all the way back to 2002. They've had two head coaches in that time. They've had two general managers in that time, and they've had two majority owners in that time. And uh, it's kind of a remarkable level of stability. I, I'm just kind of, you know, Mickey, you are someone who I think appreciates the business side of this, maybe uh, even more than, than the rest of us and, and kind of some of the off the field stuff. What do you, what do you like, I don't know. What do you make of this? What, how do you contrast these two things? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, both, both sides caught light, lightning in a bottle uh, out of the gate. Um, the Sounders obviously with crowds that nobody expected at the time. I think we all remember the stories from either Roth or Adrian that they were projecting about 12,000 fans yeah. uh, per, uh, per game when they came out and obviously doubled that right off the bat and then went up to where we, we know they are now. And Atlanta, um, you know, in some ways uh, also defied expectations, um, although they certainly had, uh, you know, an owner who was ambitious and willing to spend. Um, and 
to that point, they were able to do that and leverage, uh, you know, kind of the scouting network that they had established and and the money that they had to bring in guys like Almiron and Mar uh, Martinez um, really just to, you know, go off and just shoot off into the stratosphere. Of course, the difference, I, I suppose, between the Sounders and, and, and Atlanta on that point is that Almiron, for his part, was always going to leave, uh, whereas the Sounders didn't have anybody that high priced who was it was itching to get, you know, Montero to some degree was, but it took him four years uh, to even get a move alone back down to Colombia before he went uh, went to Portugal. Um, um, and the Sounders had at least, though, established that base uh, from which they could grow from, um, whereas Atlanta, as it turns out, has, has been a little bit, at least on the uh, personnel side, a bit a fly by night, I guess, is the best way to put it, because they have not been able to replace what they had with Almiron specifically. And he's the one really that I think, you know, exceeded what I think anybody expected. Um, and they were able to turn him into a big profit. Um, but they use that money to bring in Pity Martinez, who's no longer with the team. Uh, Barco has not lived up to expectations. Um, and then, you know, they were not able to keep Tata Martino, which is probably the biggest error that they've made in this entire saga. Um, I think, you know, there, it, I recall the reading stories that Martino would have stayed um, if he felt that he had gotten the proper offer or respect. I don't know how you want to you know, couch it, but he was not a foregone conclusion to leave if they had come to him with the right offer. And then from that point, uh, you know, I think some of the cracks that he papered over and then Almiron papered over, uh, you know, just kind of fell by the wayside. And then you now have seen a dysfunctional front office. Uh, and they, from that point, have not been able to get back to, to where they were. This story about Hines, uh, you know, not allowing the team water and not complying with CBA mandated breaks is not the first time this has happened. Uh, I went back and found uh, a quote from Bobby Boswell, who alleged the same things back in 2018 with grievances being uh, uh, put before uh, MLS from the Players Association. And so, yeah, it's just, you know, it's two separate incidents, but it does speak to something of a culture, apparently, that has gone on uh, that they haven't corrected yet. And when you combine that with a couple of misses on high priced free agent or high, high, high priced players, then you get kind of the opposite of what the Sounders uh, have experienced, which is uh, you, you're falling off the proverbial cliff. I know. I, I think that culture element is is something that really should be emphasized there because uh we heard a lot about it last week uh from schmetzer and the rest of the organization reaching back to say jimmy gabriel and the culture that got established in those through connections and i think we even see it um with the nwsl side with ol rain uh, reaching out to laura harvey and, and she she's talking about that culture and i don't think you see that where atlanta united has this kind of cultural throughput in their organization that reaches multiple years, you don't outside of Joseph Martinez, you don't really hear from their players, from the mishmash of coaching staff, from their leadership. There doesn't seem to be this cultural identity that compels people to join the organization and maintain it. And I think that's one of the flaws of the, we're going to bring people in to sell them onward model is without having a cultural foundation, all you have are mercenaries that just keep coming through, coming through. They, they make their stop, hopefully make some money, and they're on their way. 
they're not people who have fallen in love with Atlanta United, with the five stripes, the city of Atlanta, with the state of Washington. Uh, if you look at Atlanta United at their peak, how many of their best players are going to settle in, in Fulton County for the rest of their lives? And yet we see it with the Sounders from NASL, from A-League, uh, USL, and MLS. Uh, so many of the top talents have decided here is home. And that culture is really hard to establish. And that culture can't be uh, Eels and Boca Negra thinking that they've found all the answers. Uh, because, frankly, at this point, it's pretty clear. They didn't know the answers. They got they filled out the scantron right one time. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I just think that culture is something that we forget about. And we're so fortunate here in Seattle uh, to have a soccer team, you know, the men's side have a culture that stretches back multiple decades. And on the women's side to even have one, you know, to have it stretch all the way back to the beginning. And we see the, those cultural elements refresh the team regularly um, and uh, sometimes it's easy to forget that in the rest of the U.S. soccer system, uh, most of the teams are still struggling to discover those elements. You, you bring up the Laura Harvey thing, and that was actually the, the last thing I wanted to touch on, because I, I do think it's particularly well, we don't talk about the rain a lot in this particular uh, show, but we do talk about the rain a lot in this feed. And hopefully you're listening to Coffee and Valkyries, which is a wonderful podcast that. Uh, Susie uh, helps is a co-host of, but I, I do want to touch on that because I, I think it's an interesting, an interesting thing that, you know, Laura Harvey did not have any connections to Seattle before she joined the rain way back in 2013 when she was hired and she kind of fell in love with the area. She, she moved, you know, she established herself here. It was her off season home. She kind of brought players in who also fell in love with the area, you know, whether it be Lauren Barnes or Jess Fishlock or, I mean, heck, even Megan Rapino, who who wasn't literally from Seattle and now kind of has made Seattle her home. And and Laura Harvey was a big part of that. But I don't think you see this very often where a coach will leave an NWSL team, go off to, you know, in some ways, greener pastures, but then decide, you know, she left U.S. soccer to, to come back to the rain. Uh, tell us a little bit about what brought her back, uh, Susie. Uh, well, I'll first acknowledge that I did not think this was hap- going to happen. And so I was as shocked as everyone else. Um, but just like reflecting on her time with the rain um, and the kind of coach that Laura Harvey is. And I think Brian Schmetzer has a lot of this too. Like the thing that they love about coaching is the people, the players, like the chance to be, to mold players over a long period of time. And when you get into the U S soccer environment, right, you're getting them in piecemeal, you're getting them every once in a while, you don't get them every day. And I think that part, Laura Harvey missed a lot. And she said it in our press conference, introducing her back to the rain. Um, and more specifically, like the, she talked consistently about like Bill Predmore from day one has had the goal of being the best women's soccer club in the world. And he hasn't necessarily had the resources to make that happen overnight and knew that wasn't going to happen overnight, but that commitment to creating such a good and professional environment for players and looking for, and I think this gets to what Dave was talking about a little bit with the Sounders, like a long-term vision. We're not in this for this year and, and winning and glory immediately. We're looking at like a big picture, long picture for the club. And 
Um, so I think she would felt a real connection to that. And I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities there with the sounder very player focused and very like long-term focused. I got to imagine she's got to be licking her chops a little bit though, looking at this roster and especially, I mean, maybe even more so because they've underperformed a little bit in the last uh, month or so uh, that she, there is so much talent on the rain roster. They haven't necessarily been able to get it all together. And, but after the Olympics, presumably this team is going to be pretty stacked. Yeah. And she did talk about that too. And she's like, if you were to tell me I'm coming back to the rain with the same commitment to that culture. And now I have the, the best women's soccer team in the world backing our team with OL group. And I get to deal with some of the best players in the world. Like she's like, dream come true, honestly. So I think she's super excited. And to have the core that we talked about, Jess Fishlock, Lauren Barnes, Megan Rapino, Steph Cox, all four who have been there from day one. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's any players with the Sounders that are still on the team that were there in 2013. So to have four of them to still be there and so committed to the culture when um, Laura Harvey comes back is super exciting. And yes, it's been a bumpy year for sure to be a rain fan, but um, I think people should definitely be excited about that. Yeah. Steph Fry, I think is the only sounder that predates Garth Logaway who came in 2015 and he joined in 2014. So they definitely don't have anyone for, Oh, I guess Freddie Montero kind of throws that, throws that equation off a little (laughs) bit, but continuously, uh, it's just remarkable to me, the, the continuity that the rain have enjoyed because they never have been the highest, you know, the most, they've never been kind of held up as this lavishly, you know, team that's spending lavishly, you know, they, they were playing at Starfire and then they were at Memorial stadium. And now they're at Cheney, which is a nice, all nice facilities and for their own reasons, but certainly not, uh, considered the crown jewels by any stretch of the imagination and the NWSL, but it's great. I was super excited to see that Laura was coming back. Um, Is it, is it offensive for me to suggest that she might have a future in, in, uh, in men in coaching the the Sounders or coaching an MLS? Is it okay for me to say that it would be awesome to see that happen? I definitely think from a, you know, salary perspective, visibility perspective, um, there's like a huge step up there. At the same time, I think of Pat Summit, the Tennessee women's basketball coach, who always said, like, this right. is a great dream. This is a dream job. I don't want to go coach the men. Coaching the women is just as rewarding right. and should be seen at the same level. So I definitely do think, I mean, obviously the MLS has so much more visibility. The pay is, I'm 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 guessing is Imagine greater. it's a lot better, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of where women's soccer is at right now, and Laura Harvey touched on that a little bit as well in her press conference, like from when she left the rain even to now the NWSL is in such a different place for the positive. So there is a lot of momentum and um, she gets to be a part of that. So I think that excites her too. And she did allude to the fact that she loves the wildness of the NWSL. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it should be said that the NWSL is, is arguably the top league in the world, whereas MLS is clearly not arguably the top league in the world. Uh, I don't, I don't know if the NWSL is, I, I felt like at one point they were clearly the top league in the world. It seems like the the gap has maybe closed a little bit and, but it, it's certainly among the best leagues in the world. I don't think there's any debate about that. Uh, so there's, that's, you know, that's relevant. Uh, we just got to get a club championship that is comparable to like getting NWSL playing European teams in some sort of like world championship. That's what we're, we want to see. Right. 
yeah be really fun uh well that's probably a good place to 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 end this uh Susie, uh mickey dave thanks for uh hanging out with us today it was it's always fun and uh yeah this is the sounder at heart podcast and i'm jeremiah shan we will see you next time